I'm not sure exactly how old I was when I first learned about the Protestant Reformation in school. I'm guessing it was history class in seventh or eighth grade. I honestly can't recall what specifically was taught, but I do remember being drawn to it. Now, this may have been because I was at that age where I was no longer going to go out trick-or-treating and I needed something else to celebrate on October 31st. Many a confused child has walked away from my door when I told them Happy Reformation Day, when they gave them their candy. Actually, what I'm guessing happened is I was drawn to it because I had several Roman Catholic friends in school and I had always been a little bit curious what the differences were. Now, there were several obvious differences that I had been aware of since we were young children. When I ate at their home, they would cross themselves before and after their meal prayer. In fact, I visited one of these friends a few, a uh, couple years back in his home in Sioux City after a meeting I had had there, and his family did the exact same thing in the exact same rhythm that they had when I was a kid. It was, it was nostalgic, right? But I will always remember being so confused by them crossing themselves in the way they said their prayers. Well, also, there was talk of Mary. There was talk of the saints. And that didn't happen in my Reformed church, and that didn't happen in our home. Well, by this, by this age, I had probably even heard of purgatory a time or two, right? So learning about Luther and the 95 Theses against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church gave me a basic understanding of why we didn't go to the same church as my good friends. Now, at the time, it made sense. But as I grew and as I studied, I realized that these external things that I observed as differences were not really at the heart of why the Reformation happened. Sure, the things like veneration of Mary, praying to saints, purgatory, they were important and obvious differences. But really, the heart of the Reformation was answering the question, how was man made righteous before a holy God? And as I started to understand that this was the crux of the issue in the 16th century, I decided to read through the 95 Theses that Martin Luther put on the castle church door on this day in 1517. I was surprised to find that they weren't nearly as profound as I expected them to be. Ever had someone tell you that you just had to read a book or see a movie and you read it or watch it and you think, okay, this is good, but it isn't just as great as I thought it would be based upon what I'd always heard about it. And that was my experience reading through the 95 Theses. Good, great, started the Reformation, but it just, just wasn't what I had expected to read. As I continued to study and, and learn and read Luther, I came to an important point in my journey of understanding the Reformation when I came into contact with Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. In that, we find a much more mature thinking about the gospel. And I have to say that I was blown away when I found out that the Heidelberg Disputation was in 1518, less than a year after the 95 Theses had been posted. In this disputation, we see something important. There were two types of theologians that Luther talked about. 
There were theologians of glory. And Luther defines a theologian of glory in contrast to a theologian of the cross. Luther defines a theologian of glory as someone who believes that they ascend to glory by their own works. This isn't the glory of God that Luther was talking about, but the glory of man that you and I conquer on our own and we receive glory and blessing because we have ascended to God. We have risen towards him on our own. But in contrast, Luther presented the idea of the theologian of the cross. Instead of bringing glory to human effort, the true glory of God was made manifest in the work of Christ on behalf of his people in his suffering. This is contrary to our human idea of how all of this should work. By nature, you and I are theologians of glory. We we believe that it's our job to ascend the ladder to God. The theologian of the cross understands that it is not us that ascends to God, but instead he has descended to us. And in doing so, bore the wrath of God for our sins that we, may be, that we might be made right with God. Now tonight, we read from a few different passages and we are going to navigate them and hopefully this will help us to consider this idea of the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. And so as we begin, I want to line out the three points that we're going to have here to help us sort of know where we're going and, and understand what we're going to be looking for in these passages. The first thing that we're going to see is that the devil tempts Jesus with the theology of glory. In the temptation of Jesus, we see that the temptation is to ascend to the idea of earthly glory and earthly treasure. But Jesus rejects these things because he knows that this isn't his path. This is not the way that God has ordained for him to go. Secondly, we see that Peter assumes the path of earthly glory. When Jesus shares that his path is one of suffering, Peter does not want to allow this to happen. He he won't let it happen. He is assuming the path of earthly glory. And finally, we're going to see that the path of true heavenly glory is through suffering. This was the path that was prophesied, and Jesus willingly took it to redeem a people for himself. So for our first point, we're going to take a look at what we read from Matthew 4 this evening. Now this is a familiar passage, and so we know how the story goes down. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. And after fasting for a really long time, Jesus is hungry, and so the tempter attacks the humanity of Jesus. In his humanity, Jesus requires sustenance. And so Satan tempts him with an easy path. And we know that Jesus is capable of doing this. We read later on in this gospel that he multiplies loaves and he multiplies fish. Certainly God the Son can make bread from stones. The devil is tempting Jesus with the easy path. Get the food you want and get it fast. But Jesus quotes scripture at this one who is tempting him and says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is going to trust the path 
that is before him, not the easy one that is being laid out in this temptation. And the tempter then puts in front of Jesus the opportunity to show that he is mighty and powerful by taking him to the pinnacle of the temple and telling him to throw himself down and to prove that he is the son of God. Have the angels rescue you is the temptation. But Jesus again responds by correctly quoting scripture back to the devil. We shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus does not need the proof that he does not need to prove that he is the Messiah. He does not need others to see that the angels have their hand of protection on him. His trust is that God's hand is upon him and it's not dependent upon some silly test from the devil. And then we see that there is yet another test, and this is the most seductive of the three. And you and I can look at this one and clearly understand the allure of this temptation. From an elevated position, Jesus is shown the kingdoms of the world, and the devil promises them to Jesus. All he has to do is fall down and worship him. And while you and I can understand the desire to have possession of the kingdoms of the world, we can't even imagine the idea of Jesus falling down and worshiping the devil, can we? we? That just doesn't register for us. But it helps if we stop and consider what is being offered. You and I know that the Lord Jesus is our ascended king who rules over heaven and earth. But what was the path for Jesus to arrive there? It was a path that contained suffering. And so what is being offered here is an elevated place, a theology of glory, if you will. This elevated place for Jesus comes without the cross. It avoids the suffering and the price that must be paid at the cross to turn aside the wrath of God. But what does Jesus do? He once again quotes scripture and refuses the allure of the earthly by acknowledging the command to worship the Lord and him alone. And quickly working through this passage, we have seen that the idea of human glory is the easy path that the devil offers. It offers the elevation of the individual. It offers the rising of the self instead of bringing glory to Almighty God. But as I lined out in our points for this evening, this was not only from the devil. It's the natural disposition of the human heart, as we will see as we look at Jesus speaking with Peter. Now this is, this is an amazing passage here, isn't it? Jesus asks his disciples who people say that he is. And they have all kinds of answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and, or some other prophet. There's all kinds of answers. But Jesus, Jesus wants to know who they say he is. And we get from Peter an amazing confession, don't we? He believes him to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter just nails it here, doesn't he? He's got it. He absolutely has it. It's so right on that you can almost imagine that it's like the final question of a quiz show, right? He makes this answer, and suddenly the bells ding, the lights flash, the confetti falls from the ceiling. Peter, you got the right answer. You won the prize. He gets it, because it's absolutely the right answer. We, we know this. We know from reading the book of Matthew that this 
has all been leading up to this. This is, this is a high point in the text. We've been leading to this. Jesus has been letting us know who he is, and finally Peter is able to say it out loud. And we know from beyond Matthew that, that Jesus is the one who was promised. It isn't just here in Matthew that we understand this. We know all the way back to the beginning of Holy Scripture in Genesis. He is prophesied as the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so this confession is huge. And it's really what all of Scripture has been leading up to. And Jesus tells Peter that he's blessed. He he tells him about how the church is going to be built. But still we see that this is to be a secret. Jesus doesn't want the word to get out just yet. As I've said, all of Scripture has really led us to this high point here. The natural inclination, if you were following Jesus, would be now. Jesus has let us say who he is. We thought this was who he was. Now is the time to conquer. He is the one. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now's our time. It's time to give the Romans the boot. It's time to set up our kingdom with Jesus on the throne and then our little inner circle of disciples ruling with him. It's our time. Let's go. Let's take Jerusalem. As I said, that would be our natural human way of thinking, right? That we should go out and conquer, take control of the earth. But right away, we're at this high point in the book of Matthew. That's what we kind of feel here. But suddenly, there's an interesting turn in the text. Jesus and his disciples aren't plotting their overthrow of the Romans. Instead, we see something else. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem, but it isn't to kick all the people in power out. Instead, he tells them that he's going to suffer, and he's going to be killed, and on the third day rise again. This is not what we expect. This is not what we expect. And as Jesus says this, as Jesus starts to talk about suffering and talking about being killed, Peter has no time for this. This can't be how the story of the Christ will go, Jesus. This can't be it. Peter can't fathom that, that Jesus, who has healed so many, who has raised the dead, that he will suffer. How could this possibly be? This, this doesn't make sense. And so Peter lets his master know that there's no way, there's no way, Jesus, that, that I'm going to allow this to happen. Because Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. And right here, he displays that he's a theologian of glory. He is going to do it on his own. It's going to be the earthly path. It's going to be the earthly plan. It's going to be the human way. And it's easy for us, here in our pews, to look down on Peter for this. But I think you know that you and I, in our human sinfulness, would think the same thing. We'd do the same thing. The idea of God saving us through suffering is contrary to our natural human inclination and our human ideas. And we would tell Jesus to get in line behind us because we're going to take down those Romans. We are going to conquer. That's our natural inclination. There's no way we're going to let this guy suffer. No way. And we know how Jesus responds. We know this response well. Jesus rebukes Peter. 
Because he knows the path to our salvation is not an easy one. And it's not a path to earthly glory. Instead, the path of salvation for the people of God has always come through the work of God and not by human effort. And as we move on to our final point for the evening, we see that this is something that should have been known by Peter because what the Messiah would endure was clearly spelled out in God's word. We know this passage from Isaiah very well. It, it traditionally comes around for us most Good Fridays, right? The one who saves his people bears our grief. It, he carries our sorrow and is smitten by God and afflicted. That is not earthly glory. It's not. To be pierced, to be crushed, to be wounded, that's suffering. This is the theology of the cross, and it's necessary because our rebellion against God requires that a price be paid for our sin. God could not just shrug his shoulders and say, oh well, these rebels against my holiness, we'll just let that side. No, we are rebels. Rebels against the sovereign of all creation. And our sin is an affront to his perfect holiness. Our sin must be covered. It must be paid for. And we see this all the way back at the fall. Remember, God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but he does not just leave the promise hanging there. He gives us a type and a shadow to understand the salvation that we'll have in Christ right away there in the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve in their sin, they had realized that they were naked. They were overcome with shame, and so what did they do? They, they sewed together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. But those coverings, they were going to wilt. They were going to fade. And so in his mercy, what did God do? Remember back to the story. God covered the shame of their sin with clothes of skin. Animals died that day. Blood was shed to cover the shame of the sin of our first parents. And that's just the first example that we have in Scripture of the theology of the cross. Think about the rites, the rituals, and the feasts of the Old Covenant. What happened? A substitution took place, and the sin of the people was atoned for. Do those who strive after a theology of glory think that somehow that they have forgiveness and are reconciled to God apart from the shedding of blood? Do we think that somehow our own works can help us to ascend the mountain of God and be able to stand on our own merit in front of a holy God, do we really think that that's possible when we consider the sinfulness of our hearts? If we understand who God is and the absolute nature of his holiness, we will know that our works aren't enough. We know that we need something more than our own effort to atone for the wickedness sown in our rebel hearts. When we understand who God is and who we are, we will reject the theology that glorifies ourselves and instead know that the theology of the cross is all we've got. Thanks be to God that we have a Savior who suffered and died to reconcile us to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ took on our flesh, bore the wrath of God in his substitutionary death. He rose again to guarantee our salvation, and he ascended to be our mediator at the right hand of the Father. 
And we are blessed because we stand in a tradition coming down from the Reformation, from Luther and Calvin to us, that informs us that this salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And it's not by any works that you and I have done, but it is solely on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through receiving his perfect righteousness that we are saved. Our sin and wickedness has been placed on him, and we receive his perfect righteousness that we might stand in the presence of God as holy in his sight. Now, I began talking about the ideas that Luther had put forward in the Heidelberg Disputation, about this idea of the theologian of glory versus the theologian of the cross. Well, in thesis number 25 in that Heidelberg Disputation, Luther says this, He is not righteous who works much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. Believes much in Christ. This is a vital understanding for us to have as believers. We are not righteous if we work hard and try to ascend to God on our own through our own works. Instead, we are declared righteous when we believe much in Christ. And so the challenge for you and I today is to daily reject the natural inclination that we have to glorify ourselves. And this is tough to shake. It's tough to shake. We so desperately want to believe that we achieve our salvation on our own. Even if it's just the tiniest little bit of us doing the work, we want to we take some credit. But that's a theology of glory. Instead, may we daily remember the work of our suffering Savior on our behalf at the cross. That the Spirit might use the word and the gospel within us to build us up in faith and to drive us towards holiness. May we be a people of God who trusts in Christ alone, knowing that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. And may the good news of the suffering of our Savior be on our lips, that others may hear and believe much in Christ as well. So may we proclaim this news. That we are not righteous because we work much, but because we believe much in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.